This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to do music segments, and we love to talk about, well, just about every kind of music. We've done Louis Armstrong, Frank Sinatra, Nirvana, The Doors, Ray Charles, Ahmed Ertigan, you name it, we like it. Southern rock, country, blues, jazz, we did a superb piece on Miles Davis, where you heard in his own voice from Miles, about his own art, his craft, and you're listening to the work of Lauren Hill. And on this day in history, back in 1998, Lauryn Hill's only solo album exploded onto the marketplace. The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill was released. And let's take a listen to more of Lauryn Hill. Girls, you know you better. Watch out. Some guys, some guys are only about And what you're hearing is a fusion of hip-hop, old-school soul, a horn section, and you're thinking, what is this? Finally, the next iteration of rap. Here it is, in one person. The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill won the Grammy for Album of the Year, would lead Hill to receive the Grammy for the Best New Artist and three others, and she was only 23. The world was waiting for more. Before diving into more about Lauren Hill's career, though, let's dive into how she got there. And we'll be hearing from Lauren Hill herself in an incredibly rare interview she gave with the Academy Achievement in 2000 and to a group of their student achievers. One student asked her, did your mom do anything to give you all of your self-confidence as an artist? Oh, let me not even say that. My mother is still, she's right there. And I was going to say the belt. No, I'm only kidding. No, no, I'm only kidding. I'm only, only kidding. I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> every, every, every time I say that, my mother thinks that I make her look so bad. But it, it, no, there was just, you know, my, a friend of mine put it this way. My mother used to make me sandwiches and not physical sandwiches. But, but, but spiritual sandwiches, okay? She would give me bread, and the bread was encouragement and love. And then the meat was the correction, okay? <laughs> and then there was another piece of bread, which was the encouragement and the love. So that worked, you see? She just dealt with me in truth at all times. You know, no, 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 wait, let me go back. Wait a minute. That's not true, because there was this one time. Do you guys remember those plastic shoes, jellies? Listen, I wanted them so bad, my mother told me I couldn't have them because they would melt on my feet. And I was like, you know, and it, it, you grow up now and you realize, what do you, what you said? And that's why I have on plastic shoes right now, because I wanted those jellies. And then there was, you remember those raincoats, the clear ones? She told me that I would suffocate if I wore one of those. Bye, you, you, did, you didn't, have, but you know, no, I'm serious. But she, she, dealt with, she dealt with me in love. There was a certain amount of, it was a, there was a, actually, there was a huge level of freedom in our relationship. 
um, because we, we exercised choice from an early age. But at the same time, there was discipline. You know what I mean? There were parameters. But we could choose. You know, I remember her telling me stories about when I was five years old. Uh, every Saturday, of course, it was on a school day. But Saturdays and Sundays, she would allow me to dress myself. And, of course, I would put on, you know, my cowboy boots, like some crazy skirt, a flash dance sweater. You know, ridiculous, just looking real crazy. But at that point, from five years old, she was allowing me to be an individual, allowing me to be unique. We just had a very nonconformist family, a very loving. Love is so important. A loving environment. You know, I really, I, I, to this day, I, I, I can't tell you how blessed I am to know how much love. Lauren Hill would need that self-confidence from her family's love, especially at a moment like this, performing at the Apollo Theater's infamous amateur night and at a very tender age. How old are you, Lauren? I'm 13. Lauren's 13. What song are you singing? Who's Loving You? Who's Loving You? Well, come on, Lauren. We're going to love you. Sing for us. Pretty rough. Pretty rough. And this is before American Idol. He's a kid, and some kids would have never recovered from that booing. And by the way, at the Apollo, if they don't like you, they booed. I've been to the Apollo many times on amateur night, and it can be tough. And for no darn reason, sometimes they just feel like booing you. Well, because they're from New York or Philly, I mean, those New York crowds and Philly crowds are two of the toughest in the world. So let's hear from Lauren about her musical influence as a kid. You could say that she was slightly obsessed with music. Oh, boy, I think uh, What's Going On, Marvin Gaye. I just remember, like, playing the first side over and over again. You know, there was one of those old record players. After I moved up from the uh, the little suitcase record player, there was a a bigger record player that my grandmother had given to me, and it was one of those old arms that, you know, when you pressed repeat, it turned and went down. And I, I used to play my records aloud until one night my mother was like, this is too loud, I'm not having it. And so I put on headphones, but in order for me to listen to the records, you know, the headphones didn't stretch all the way to my bed from the record player. So I had to sleep on the floor in order to hear the records. And that's where I slept until high, until college. I slept on the floor right next to the record player until I was probably 19 years old, really. I mean, I just started sleeping in the bed again <laughs> because my records, you know, that was, that was their space, the bed. And I just stayed on the floor listening to this music. And a very interesting insight into the mind, the life, the soul of Lauren Hill. We heard from her about her mom, about the love of her family. My goodness, we heard her get booed off the stage at the Apollo. When we come back, more of this interesting life on this day in history, the miseducation of Lauren Hill became a runaway smash hit. And we're talking about Lauren 
in these segments. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and for the hour, the life of Lauren Hill. When I first heard that we'd be spending an hour on Lauren Hill, I was there, really? I mean, I, I mean, she's a talent, and she recorded one of the great records of all time. And we do like to cover every kind of music here. You're not going to, I don't think, ever glean what our dear preferences are because we've done everything from Sinatra to Ray Charles to Ahmad Ertigan uh, to country music and now to hip-hop. And we'll be spending more time on hip-hop. We'll be doing an hour on the life of Tupac soon. And we have some great sound from Lauren Hill, and I think it's her story as much as anything else that's really compelling and here she is talking about music. And is she still, and was she still obsessive about music after she signed a professional recording contract? Actually, to be very honest with you, I don't listen to a lot of music at all anymore, anymore at all. I, I think that's very bizarre, too, because it was such a comfort zone for me. But I don't know if I had my fill, you know, but I don't listen to a lot of music anymore because I'm, I'm, I'm creating it now. You know, everything takes place in a season. There was a season where that's all I did was listen. And now I'm just in a place where I, I don't listen, I create. And if I do listen, you know, there are specific things that I listen to and for specific reasons. I'm no longer listening for the... I, I rarely, I, I don't want to say I no longer, but I rarely listen for the sheer pleasure. I'm listening for the tool. I'm listening for the instrument. I'm listening for the art. I'm listening for... Boy, that was that was crazy what they just did. Yeah, so she's now listening to discover something that might help her create her own original music. But when she was listening a lot, she was listening for really, I think, cover songs. And she found Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly, and she was so crazy about it that she had to cover it for the Fugees. And this is what really launched her career and got her to her solo career. It reached number one on the pop Billboard charts. And just when Lauren Hill and the Fugees were taking victory laps with their big hit record, it all fell apart. The band broke up, partly because of a romantic relationship that had gone ban- bad between she and a bandmate. If I'd had it my way, I would have been in the group forever. I enjoyed the group atmosphere. I thought, you know, it's so good to have two guys on stage backing you up. But um, the interesting thing about entertainment is that when you're struggling, everybody goes in with the same goals. You know, but somewhere along the success area, you start to look at everyone around you and go, wait a minute, 
Where are you going? Where are you headed? Because I'm going this way. Wait, what happened? I thought we were all on the... Sometimes success can do that. Sometimes it, it really uh, illuminates creative differences, spiritual differences, emotional differences. And I, you know, just like a, a, a young person would think that, you know, the friends that you, my fifth grade friends are going to be my friends forever, you know, throughout high school, throughout. And it's not that they cease being your friends, but sometimes you just mature to a place and some people get there faster, some people don't. And, and hopefully, ultimately, everyone catches up. But um, it, it, it's really interesting because I didn't actually make a decision to be solo. It really just happened. I, I promise you that it's hard to explain, but you know, I'd intended to be in the group forever until I found myself in, in circumstances where I felt the, the inner desire to express myself freely and openly without any constraint, without anybody saying, hey, that's, you can't say that. That's not, that's not fly. You can't say that. People won't, you know what I mean? So the only way I could have done that was in doing a solo release. Lauren Hill knew what she now wanted to do, and that was create something original, something different from the increasingly vile and violent hip-hop of the 1990s. I think we all have a certain corner to hold. We uh, Earlier this year, Curtis Mayfield uh, passed away, and we there was a memorial. They asked me to sing at the memorial, and I was realizing that um, what Curtis represented in the 60s and 70s, you know, it's like there's a season and, and it's it's not really about the, the messenger per se, it's more about the message and how he had a time where he had to hold it because there, you know, other people were singing love songs and other things, you know, he had a very uh, political, spiritual message and even though it was entertaining and you enjoyed it and you could dance to it, you know, there was there was this 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 very heavy value and, I, and, and as I listened to his eulogy and as I listened to the music, I mean, music that I grew up listening to, it just dawned on me that that our generation is no different. You know, someone has to hold it. When everyone else is being indulgent and doing whatever they want to do, someone has to be responsible so that that music reaches and, and touches, you know, a specific chord. And that may not be me. <laughs> you know, I may lose my mind tomorrow, and <laughs> but it's got to be somebody. And Lauren was doing what I think Queen Latifah was doing at the time, too, with her records, at Tommy Boy Records, and Latifah was trying, and everybody forgets now, she's a big movie star, but she started with a hip-hop recording career. She was a star. She signed Naughty by Nature and a whole bunch of other big stars. It was a very different kind of rap music, uh, and rap took a turn, and Lauren Hill's music uh, on, on her big breakout record was a rebuttal to much of what was going on in hip-hop. What came, what came out of Lauren Hill's first record that was released on this day in history was an honest examination of herself. Unlike most hip-hop, it wasn't self-praise every other paragraph. And it was entitled The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Homage to Carter Woodson, one of the first scholars to study African-American history and his groundbreaking book that was on her parents' bookshelf, The Miseducation of the Negro. Who made these- 
you know, miseducation. Wow. It, it, every day it means something more <laughs> to me, actually. People automatically thought, you know, oh my, she must not have done school. You know, maybe my their teachers didn't teach anything, but that that wasn't it. The, the meaning behind it was really sort of a of a catch in, in me learning that, you know, when I thought I was my most wise, really not wise at all. And then my humility and, and in those places that most people wouldn't expect a lesson to come from. That's where I learned so much. And this is a very reflective look at life. And again, as we're going to hear in the upcoming segment, Lauren Hill is turning the camera on herself and doing what artists do in the end, revealing themselves. And again, very different from what we know about modern hip-hop, which is to brag. It's the boast. If you remember in 8 Mile, it's the slam poetry, uh, your mama, your mama, and your mama. And, well, the women, a lot of women, found much of what was happening in hip-hop repulsive. And Latifah did, Lauren Hill did, and I think that's part of their mass appeal in addition to their tremendous musical talents. Uh, And it's ironic that both of these ladies left the field I mean, Latifah left after working on a, a two-pack record. Uh, there was an assassination attempt on his life, and I think she thought, this business, I just got to get out of this business. It, it's for thugs. And uh, Lauren Hill, as you know, uh, well, we've been waiting for a long time. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about Lauren Hill from Lauren Hill, and we'll play more of her great music. And as always, we celebrate musical artists. Go to our our story about the song Light My Fire and how it got made and Gimme Shelter and how that song got made and also There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney and how that song got made. And of course our hour-long celebration of the founder of Atlantic Records, Ahmet Ertigan. It doesn't get better than that. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Lauren Hill for the hour. Her life as an artist and a writer. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Lauren Hill. And on this day in history, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill was released. It catapulted to the top of the charts, one of the great albums of the 1990s. And we're spending some time talking about her life. We stumbled upon some remarkable audio and the story behind the story of a writer, like the story behind the story of a song. It fascinates us. 
And that's why we run these things down. And we don't care what the idiom, idiom of music or whether it was recorded in the 1920s, the 18th century, or yesterday. Uh, if it's interesting, we're going to cover it. And we don't care, again, what, what the kind of music. So what are some of the things Lauren Hill thought she was miseducated about? You know, it was about a young woman in the music industry and the pitfalls, the snares, the traps. And they don't stop. They keep coming. I think that because I, I grew up in such a loving family structure, I thought that everybody did. And therefore, I thought that everybody reaped the, the benefit of that love. And pretty naive way to think. And so I learned very important lessons about people and their voids. And how when you have voids, you know, like a, like a black hole just sucks, you know, and consumes everything into it. And I, I met a lot of those people. But a lot of black holes, a lot of people with a lot of deep, deep, painful voids who found it easy to take advantage and to manipulate and to deceive someone with me who just, you know, all I want to do is love. Beware the false motives of others. Be careful of those who pretend to be brothers. And you never suppose it's those. A lot of that was unconscious creation, un- unconscious creativity, because I was so overwhelmingly emotional. You know, it was just like I, I couldn't, I just had to write about this. Because every time that God navigates my ship, there's, there's nothing cerebral going on. There's very little, you know, there's very little thought. It's almost as if I have the directions. It's all there and it's clear. These, these, these are your orders. Just go forth and carry them out. During the recording of this album, by the way, we learned that Lauren Hill read the Bible every day for sustenance. She told the Academy of Achievement, quote, if the entire week is a battlefield, the Bible is a parachute with a box of reserves like the ones that come in the middle of a war with food, water, and a toothbrush. You know, and she was talking about that void And we've all met those people with voids and what they'll do, and they'll just swallow you up. They'll eat you alive to fill the void. It's it's unfillable because it's insatiable, the appetite of folks who have that void. After the success of the miseducation of Lauren Hill, she waited to hear from her creator. So I was going to say what I've consciously decided to do is be patient and wait for those instructions again as opposed to the instructions from the record company. Well, that's uh, pretty sound advice, and, and we're hearing, well, we're hearing a lot more from Lauren Hill here because she waited patiently. Her fans, not so much, with the exception of an MTV Live Unplugged performance, an album in 2002, Lauren Hill has not recorded another album of her own music. Here she is talking about it in the year 2000. I'll be very honest with you, as a musician today, I'm not in the studio right now, and everybody in my world thinks I'm crazy. 
what's going on? You need another album out. You know, the time is running out. You have a window, a certain window to make music. And um, for a little while, I listened to that. And I was like in the studio working real hard, trying to get it done. And, you know, music was created. Definitely music that I think people will appreciate, but it wasn't my best. And it wasn't my best because there was no substance. And there was no substance because there was no experience. And the only reason why The Miseducation was the album it was was because of a myriad of experiences that took place before the production part, before the creation. I keep letting you back Explain myself as painful as this thing has been. I just can't be with no one else. See, I know what we've got to do. You let go, and I let go too. I mean, my whole life at at a certain point was. Studio, hotel, stage, hotel, stage, studio, stage, hotel, studio, stage, you know, and, you know, and I was expressing, I, I was expressing everything from my past. You know, you, you, you have to go back to the well in order to, to give someone something to drink, you know, you can't, I felt like a cistern dried up and like there was nothing more, you know, and I, and it, it was so beautiful because normalcy. I returned to a normal situation with my children running around, screaming, <laughs> and, and it was wonderful. And I walked down the street and I went grocery shopping and I loved it. Every minute of it I love. I find, you know, even when it's raining, I just go outside, I look outside and I, I'm just so blessed to see it and to experience it because for such a long time I was just indoors. And seasons, I get to her core belief about something bigger than her, and that gets right to Ecclesiastes. And one of my favorite songs, the way the birds covered, turn, turn, turn. It's just a Bible verse. Tom Petty's favorite song, by the way. Go figure. Here's Lauren Hill, who believes that each moment belongs to a season in your life, and you have to respect those seasons. It's peaks and valleys. And some people think that that, some people explain that as good times, bad times, but I actually think it's learning or, let's say, learning mastership, learning mastership, okay, or study mastership, study mastership. Now, right, I went from the top of one mountain. I had mastered something. I would mastered something and people appreciated it. But, you know, once you're on the top of that mountain, you have to go this way. But in hip-hop, everybody's like, I'm not moving. I'm the master. I'm, I'm great. I'm dope. I'm hot. I'm here. I've arrived. I'm not going anywhere. And that's what ha- you stay stuck on top of one, on one hill, one mountain, when God's intention is that we study and master a bunch of different things. And so here I am descending this hill, and everybody's like, where are you going? You know, we, we, we're supposed to be on the top of the hill. But it's, it's exciting time. It's, it's definitely exciting time for me because I'm at the foot of another hill. So I would just encourage everybody, never be afraid of not knowing. Never be afraid of not knowing. Find out. Because that's how you get to mastership. Let's not be mediocre 
in our greatness. You know what I mean? Like, think big. Think big. And there you have it. She just stopped playing because, well, she had hit another season in her life and she didn't have anything else to say. God hadn't directed her to say anything new. Think about Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird. Nothing after. J.D. Salinger, Catcher in the Rye. Nothing after. This record was that big and it said a lot of things. Maybe it said everything. And clearly, Lauren Hill thought she was going through another phase in her life, another season. And when we come back, the last part of this fascinating hour on a life I had not known enough about, a record certainly I had known, as big a record as there were in the 1990s. This is Lee Habib, the life of Lauren Hill. This day in history, the miseducation of Lauren Hill was released. American Stories, The Life of Lauren Hill. And we're celebrating that life because on this day in history, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill was released. Her first solo record, her only solo record. And people have been waiting for a long time for the next one. And she just said, look, there are seasons in our life. And she talked about the Bible. And remember Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. And she just talked about God calling her to raise her kids and not calling her to do another record. Very, very unusual. And not because she was strung out on drugs and not because she walked off because she couldn't walk back on. And so here's Lauren Hill on what she makes of all the criticism of her not making more music. The music industry is just a microcosm of the world. So whenever you stand for something and you stand for goodness and truth, you will always get resistance. That's period. Whether you're in pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry, the record industry or whatever, whenever you stand for truth and for the service, you know, the service of others. See, I, I can make money very easily. I could make records that are self-indulgent and, you know, basically self-promote me. 
I could do that. I could do that. Promote myself. That was redundant, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you know, just do those things. It's very easy. As a matter of fact, you know, lyrically as an MC, that stuff comes easy. But in order to promote something higher, I mean, I feel now at the ripe old age of 25 that the only thing that I could do is, is serve others. And because there are people who have not reached that point in their walk, you know, yes, there's a little anger, there's a little resentment, because you, you raise a standard, you know, you, you, especially when you do it and, and you make some noise, you know, and you do it and, and people actually listen to what you have to say and, like, your record is bumping on the radio and you're saying something that holds a mirror up to a lot of the negativity and self-indulgent things and messages that a lot of other people, you know, but, but we're all young. I mean, I, I have a hard time um, being so hard on the music world, especially hip-hop, because most of them come out of the hood 17 years old, having no clue or concept of what life really is. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm so blessed to have reached this place where, you know, five years ago I was so thin-skinned. Whatever anybody said would just, oh, my God, they don't like this rhyme and oh, my songs. And, uh, you know, and then one day I woke up and it was like my, my skin was just, it was so thick, it was impenetrable by those fiery darts. It just, just, they just had no effect. And I realized that that was a strength and a confidence that only came from a higher source. And Lauren Hill closes with some advice for the Academy of Achievements student achievers. For me now, I'm learning that it's more important to be righteous than to be right. I've tried to be right. You know, this is right. This is an injustice. This is a travesty. I'm right. But I've been very unrighteous and still right. Oh, my God. You know, because you, you can attack someone completely right, but it doesn't resolve anything. So I understand now that the battlefield and that the war is so much greater than what we see before us. You know, I, I live in this physical body. This is like my address, like 22 Eater Terrace. I just gave everybody my address, but that's my address. <laughs> <laughs> Fight me. No. But this is where I live, you know? But there's something much deeper. Who I am, you know, has nothing to do with, you know, the hair and, and the shoes and stuff, even though I like shoes. But, you know, it has nothing to do with that. So I um, pray for the people who don't understand me. And I tell you, to be honest with you, I pray more now to understand than to be understood. I pray now to, know, to learn how to love than to be loved. Because God has given me an abundance you understand what I'm saying? Our, our enemies are not, you know, they're not flesh and blood. And our problems are not flesh and blood, even though we think they are. I don't mean to sound ethereal, because what I'm saying, I'm telling you, is heavy as bricks. It's ve- very concrete. Sometimes it can sound like, doo, 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 you know, but it's, it's not that. You know, it's like, it, 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 who saw the, the, the movie The Matrix? Okay, okay, good. Then we, we, can, we can start from a point of reference. Matrix was banging movie to me. And the reason why I appreciated it so much was because, do you remember at the end when Neo, like, realized his potential? He started to see the binary code? You remember that? The whole world? Well, I'm, that's where I'm trying to be spiritually. I'm trying to see the word of God in the whole world. So every time that agent throws a punch, I'm like, I see you. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, I'm just catching his punches. 
but the, but here's the trick. Here's the trick. You, you know, here's the trick is that you have to remember that sometimes you can be an agent. You can be an agent for, to yourself. You can be an agent against someone else and not even realize that you're being used. That's the matrix. In order to be used by God, you have to really be used. You know, we always want to be used for the glorious jobs. Let God put me on the stage in front of the people in the Grammy show with a nice dress on. Let me just praise your name. But that's not being used. Sometimes in order to be used, you also have to be humiliated. You have to be humiliated sometimes. You have to be kicked and beaten. Let me tell you another thing about the Matrix. (laughs) Going back to the Matrix is that I was always confused about it. I always thought that, you know, the Matrix was battling the enemy out there, picking them out. I'm going to find those enemies. I'm going to get that enemy until I realized that until you conquer the enemy in yourself, you can't deal with anyone. Lauren Hill is raising six kids, waiting for new experiences and new instructions from above. In the summer of 2015, the world did briefly hear from her. She had six songs on a tribute album to Nina Simone called Nina Revisited, and it was like she didn't miss a beat all these years later. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting all by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. Woo. And I'm feeling good. Fly out in the sun You know what I mean Don't you know Butterflies are having fun You know what I mean Sleep in peace When day is done That's what I mean And this whole world Is a new world And a bold world And to close out our hour-long celebration of this interesting and compelling life, and I'm sure, uh, look, I'm a big music fan. I didn't know this story. It's terrific. I just thought, uh, who knows? She just ran out of stuff. She ran out of material. She quit while she was ahead. She pulled a Seinfeld. She pulled a, uh, a Johnny Carson because those guys, well, they quit while they were ahead. They, they did everything they could have done, and they had nothing left. Uh, but she was just scraping the iceberg, actually. And she just got a signal from above and said, stop, raise your kids. She hasn't gotten the signal back. So we close out our hour-long celebration of Lauren Hill with her one-of-a-kind rendition of The Little Drummer Boy. Time they told me 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Nirvana, and it's off their first album. It's called School. And we love bumping in with music that relates to the segments we're about to do. I didn't know that song, and I'm a Nirvana fan. Thanks for that, Jesse. And uh, joining us right now to talk about a story that we keep hitting in various ways is Angela Browning. And we recently came across a Facebook group filled with mothers and parents, nearly 6,000 of them, who are working on changing the law in Florida to fix a big problem in their kids' lives. But it's not just a Florida problem. It's a national problem. Our kids just aren't getting enough, well, some would say not nearly enough, recess in school. And a new group of so-called recess moms has had enough. We're joined again by recess mom, Angela Browning. Angela, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Angela, before we start, we always like to know, you know, where, where are you in Florida? What particular town? Talk about your family a little bit. And then ultimately, let's talk about what led you to this space. Sure. Well, I live in Orlando, Florida, which is in Orange County, uh, with my husband and our three boys. We have 10-year-old twins uh, who just started fourth grade last week and a six-year-old who started first grade. Um, I actually have a, uh, a law degree from Ave Maria School of Law, which is now down in Naples, Florida, um, but I work as a paralegal for an insurance company. I like having the flexibility to be able to volunteer in my kids' classrooms uh, and, and be there for them when they need me. So, um, so that was a choice that I made. You bet. And so you know a little bit about the intersection of the law and the culture, particularly Ave Maria does a great job of doing that. And Ave Maria is a Catholic law school founded by the Domino's Pizza founder, Tom Monahan, and they do a great job at preparing people to do just what Angela is doing. Uh, so, Angela, your, your kids uh, suddenly find themselves without a recess. Talk a little bit about where that came from, because obviously there had to be an anti-recess movement before there was a pro-recess movement, only that anti-recess movement probably had nothing to do with parents. Where did this thing spring up from? Whose idea was it? Sure. Well, what happens is, you know, our school districts tell us we, you know, we didn't cancel recess. But but what did happen is that uh, somewhere along the line, this testing uh, really just took over in our classrooms. And the focus switched from the well-being of our children to... Uh, you know, making sure that these children do well on these tests because there are very high stakes attached to them here in Florida. That's where our schools are graded. Um, our teachers, their VAM scores now come from those from those test scores. Um, so funding comes from them. And so my children, uh, all of a sudden, were coming home complaining about school, complaining that the day was too long, crying, asking me not to send them back to school. And my older boys had just begun second grade. Um, so I just, it just caused me to wake up and ask what was going on. Why all of a sudden were my eight-year-olds, who are supposed to love school and love learning, um, begging me not to send them back? And, and so you're a parent, and obviously you, you take parenting really seriously because you could be practicing law, and what you're instead doing is doing paralegal work so that you can time shift and you can move, move the work around and you can have flexibility to be a present parent. So where did it spring in your head that this was an idea worth fighting for? And then what were the steps you took to fight? Well, I'll tell you, the first thing that I did was I asked, and that's what I think is really important. You know, we tell our group members, ask your kids if they're getting recess, because 
before this, I didn't even think to ask. So I asked my boys, well, what, what about recess when you go out and you get to play with your friends? Don't you get to have fun at recess? And they said, well, we don't get recess that often anymore. And I said, what do you mean you don't get recess that often anymore? And they said, well, we only get to go to recess once or twice a week when we don't have PE. And I, I was just horrified. I mean, some of my best memories during elementary school happened on the playground. And so I looked into it and I realized that my children were getting 15 minutes of recess once or twice a week. Uh, and I had a friend who, um, who lives near to me, but her daughters go to another school, and she and I talked about it. It was the same thing. Her kids were down to uh, two 20-minute recesses a week. And we just decided, you know, this is not okay. It's not okay for us. Our children are young. They have a right to be children. They have a right to play. Playing is developmentally appropriate learning for elementary school children. And we just talked one day in early October of 2014 and decided it was stop, time to stop complaining to our friends and, and start being advocates for our children. Well, this is a great story. And I, uh, just a little backwards before we go forwards in the next segment. The, the testing and the state testing, and you raised that. And there, there are lots of us who believe that you've got to hold teachers and schools accountable. So we don't, sure. we don't hate testing. But the question sure. is, and I know my little girl's experiencing this here in Mississippi. It, she'll say, Dad, it never stops. It's yeah. test after test after test. We're testing for the test. We're prepping for the test. Then after the test, we take another test. And so in a sense, you're not saying you don't want any accountability for the schools because we need a way to measure schools. It's just testing gone wild. Absolutely. One hundred percent agree. I am not opposed to testing. I am opposed to uh, a, a culture where the stakes of testing are so high that it takes over our classrooms. Uh, We lose centers in the younger grades. We lose recess. We lose access to physical education. We lose access to art and music. These children are being tested and assessed, and they are being taught to fill in bubbles. And we need to teach children to think critically. We need to, to test them. We need to assess where they are. We need to make sure that we are seeing learning gains in our classrooms. But we can't let it take over teaching. It's we a, need to teach these children. That's so well said. And by the way, the, these very things we're cutting out might just help raise those test scores, Angela. That's the point, too, that test scores are complicated and the human mind is complicated. And you can't put people in a box. And my goodness, you can't anesthetize them by just having them repeat over and over the same old thing so they can fill out a bubble on a sheet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Recess Moms. And Angela Browning is one of them, and she's fighting the fight in Orlando and in the state of Florida. More after these messages with Angela.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love it when citizens take a stand and punch back at the bureaucracies that rule their lives and our lives. And it happens in every walk of life, but no place worse than our local schools. And one mom, well, she decided to fight back against lack of recess. And by the way, it's not just recess, as we learned in the last segment. It's so many other things uh, because of testing regimes that are now crowding out space for our kids' development and particularly their creative outlets in, in schools across this country. It's not just a Florida problem, but we have one mom, Angela Browning, who has sparked a mini revolution in the state of Florida, and we pick up where we left off. Angela, so you know this is a problem, you identify it. I think what moms typically do is they go, and thank goodness there are present moms in the school, uh, they go, let's go to the school board. So what happens next? Uh, So we created a petition uh, for Orange County. We created a Facebook page. Uh, We grew our our number of moms, so to speak. Um, We went to our school board, and we presented them with binders full of research. We came upon the research by accident, um, but there are very few subjects on which all of the experts agree, and recess is one of them. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the National Association for Sport and Physical Education, the CDC, the list goes on and on. They all find that recess is a critical part of the school day and crucial to a child's development. And so we brought this research to our school board. We presented them uh, with this research. We literally begged and pleaded um, for them to do the right thing, to restore 20 minutes of daily recess for all elementary school students in our district, and the answer was a resounding no. Um, it wasn't just a resounding no. We actually had school board members from the bench uh, say things like, if you take away the play, 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 the school gets an A, A, A. Oh, my goodness. And obviously, we were horrified. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And by the way, how condescending, and this is always what bugs you, is if you know different and you're a citizen and you go to these school boards, they act as if you're the rabble. Like, you don't have an informed opinion. And that may be one of the dumbest things anybody in education could ever say to somebody. And I say that as a dad who won superintendent of the year and teacher of the year, a tremendous educator. And he always fought for creative space for his kids and things like recess because he knew that's how you had an engaged child. So the school board blows you off. But little do they know, well, there was a lawyer in their midst and someone who was not, and a mom, even worse, a mom who is a lawyer and has some time. Talk about right. the next step, Angela. Well, we contacted our legislator, who um, ironically happens to be a teacher in our district. Uh, we, we went to him and we said, uh, listen, this is the problem. We have, um, we have presented our school board with solutions. They're not interested in them. They are interested in uh, giving us more and more excuses, and we need help. We don't know what to do. And he said to us, very honestly, he said, I don't know if I can help you, but I'm going to research this problem, and I'm sure as heck going to try. And and he went back, and he researched the problem. He saw that we had gone about this the right way, and, and he called us one day, uh, and he said, listen, I'm on my way back home from Tallahassee, and I want you to know that when I get home, I'm going to write a bill. And we're going to solve this problem throughout the state of Florida once and for all. Um, and we were thrilled. We, uh, we reached out and joined with other recess moms who had their own recess efforts in districts across the state of Florida. Um, we, we have moms that represent 24 uh, counties. 
and um, we just banded together, and we decided that we were gonna we were gonna try to get this bill passed. And what happened? Because it's quite it's almost a thriller, Angela. Because each step you think you're coming up, and then whack, you get whacked again. And then thank goodness for persistent parents, you just keep coming back at them. What happened next? Well, uh, the bill was filed in Tallahassee in December of 2015. Uh, we worked our butts off trying to get the bill heard in committee. Um, we traveled to Tallahassee as recess moms. Uh, we would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, get ready, get in the car, drive four hours uh, north to Tallahassee, uh, spend all day meeting with state representatives and state senators, uh, eat dinner, and then come back and get home about midnight. So we managed to get the bill through the entire house with the help of our sponsor in the House, um, who, as I said, was Representative Renee Placencia. We were absolutely thrilled. There were only two legislators on the floor who voted against our bill. In the Senate, however, our first committee of reference was the Pre-K through 12 Education Committee, and that was chaired by a senator by the name of John Legg, uh, who did not like our bill. He said he felt that recess should continue to be handled locally. He refused to meet with us refused to take our phone calls, refused to respond to our email. Um, he, he really would have nothing to do to us with us. So unfortunately, we weren't able to get the bill uh, through the Senate. Uh, but we dusted ourselves off. Uh, we have been working in the off season, uh, and we're really, really thrilled about how things look for us next year. We've, um, we've made some really great progress. Well, good for you, because the school board was counting on you going away. And by the way, as my dad always said, he loved active parents, but so many superintendents didn't because they, they were seen as impediments and blockage to just doing what they felt like doing. And for my dad's sake, it was always, let's get the buy-in of the parents, because there's nothing like parents who agree with educators. It can be a really, you can, you can make some great changes. And you didn't quit. You, you, got, you got a 112 to 2 vote in the House. The Senate blocks you. Um, and you're back at it again. Talk to other moms listening out there in other states, Angela, about what they can do. Sure. Well, we're going to need, you know, we're going to need help to get this done. But as I said, we believe this will be our year. It's really important for parents to get engaged and get involved. Until I asked my children um, what they were doing at recess and how often they had it, I didn't know. So you've really got to ask your children, do you get that break in the school day, and do you get it every single day? regardless of whether or not your kids have PE. If you find that your children are not getting that break, then you need to go to your principal and you need to ask them to implement a universally recommended research-based 20-minute daily recess period. And you need to be proud of your advocacy for your children. You need to be willing to say to your principal, look, I think you're a wonderful person. I'm asking you to do this at the school level. If you can't do it or if you won't do it, I just want to let you know that I'm going to keep moving up the ladder until I get it done. Good for you. That's really that's really what we've done uh, on the state level. We are so proud to say that we have secured the um, the support of the future Speaker of the House and the future Senate President next year. Um, our bill will be sponsored again by Representative Placencia, and it will be sponsored in the Senate this year by a senator out of Miami-Dade County, um, Senator Flores, who is a mom who has young children. So, um, so we love that. And, and I think it's really great, um, a really great kind of keep pushing, keep trying success story to just share with your audience that the future Speaker of the House, who has now committed to support our bill next session, 
is actually one of the two legislators who voted against the bill in the House last wow. year. Good for you. And that's the par- power of a lot of moms continuing to push. And in the end, it is a democracy, and it is, in the end, uh, a state legislature that better respond to large groups of people or be voted out of office. I had one last question. For parents sure. who hear physical ed or PE class is a substitute for recess, explain to the folks why PE I mean, I know the answer to this, but what's the difference sure. between PE and recess as it relates to your kid's development? Sure. PE is an incredibly important part of your child's education, but it is separate distinct from recess. Um, There are unique skills that children learn during unstructured play on the playground. That's where they learn to problem solve. That's where they learn leadership skills and social skills and coping skills. Um, And those things cannot be replicated in the classroom. PE is a class. It is structured. It is teacher-led. Your children are directed to do A, B, and C. Uh, It is not unstructured free play. And here in Florida, there are Florida standards attached to the PE curriculum, and those teachers are required to show learning games. Learning games. As a matter of fact, fifth graders uh, um, in our district or in our state are actually tested in PE at the end of the year. So PE is certainly worthwhile, but it's not a break from the rigor and the curriculum of the classroom. And the research that I referred to earlier shows that academics improve when children get a break from the classroom that is unstructured so that they can truly rejuvenate, refresh their minds, and come back to the classroom. And Angela, we all know this because we need that time in our lives throughout our lives. We just know this to be true, but it's great to have the research to back it up. Moms, recess moms, fighting for recess to be put back into Florida schools. Angela Browning leading the fight. Angela, thanks so much for joining us, and let's keep in touch and find out what happens in this legislative session coming up. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we talk about everything here on this show, and one of the most important things we talk about is love. And that, of course, means marriage. And a good marriage can change, well, it can change everything. And joining us, as always, our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak. But before we do that, Deb brings us the authors of a book series, Ten Great Dates. And what an inspiration these authors are. Having met as teenagers just out of high school, They've been married over 53 years, and since 1983, they've written over 13 books about the importance of continuing to date your spouse. Deb, take it away. I'm so excited today because we get to speak with David and Claudia Arp. If you haven't heard of their name yet, you need to because they talk about such wonderful things such as dating your spouse. I'm a big proponent of that. David and Claudia, thank you so much for joining us today. Deb, we're glad to be with you. 
So someone listening to this who may not have picked up a book yet or, you know, um, is listening at home, whether it's the guy or the girl, do you have any advice for how to put together a great date? Like, what are the components of a great date? Well, I think finding something that you both are interested in doing, oftentimes uh, women will say, hey, I just can't get my husband to, to go out on a date. You know, I just can't seem to get him motivated. And basically what we encourage is to well, think back on, it, as you ask us, you know, what what were some of the dates you took before you got married or in the early years of your marriage? What were some things that you did for fun? And oftentimes they'll say, oh, well, we used to go to the park and have peanut butter sandwiches or something like that. So, well, go back and do some of the things that you did uh, initially that brings back those good memories of, hey, you know, this is something we did and that this is how we sort of, you know, getting connected and really fell in love. And uh, Another tip is uh, be sure you include an opportunity to talk and also to do something. Men tend to relax by doing something, and women tend to relax by talking. So that's why our hiking date works so well for us. So you want to find something. And then try new things. It's not just dating. A dinner and a movie is great, but it's not going to move your relationship forward that much. Research shows that if you if you really try something new, that's what is going to really help to energize your marriage. Mm-hmm. And Deb, another what we, we, we stress is dating is an attitude. You can take anything and turn it into a date. Even things that you have to do, you know, just uh, to do it together. So you can take anything. Going to get laundry or going to get groceries, you can you know, turn it into a date. That that is really good. What about like date no nos? Things that you definitely should not do because they might spoil your date. Oh, uh, don't talk about finances. Don't talk yeah, about don't the mother-in-law. Don't talk about the kids. Um, don't. Uh, it's not a time to solve all the problems. It's not a time to tell your spouse everything you've been wanting to say and it's been building up. And you know, be future focused and stay positive. And please turn off your phone. <laughs> Leave it in the car. <laughs> Ooh, even you're, even you're, for us, this this can be an issue. It's sometimes. a challenge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say you're challenging our younger listeners because so many younger folks are all about texting and short phrases. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah sometimes we're sitting at a restaurant and we're we're looking around. We'll say, "Hey, look at this young couple over here. You know, they're out on a date, and they're both on their phones." And mm. you know, I want to go over and just sort of. <laughs> Yank the phones out of our hands. So, I mean, one time we were sitting in a restaurant, and I said, "Well, let's 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 join in a group." So I text Claudia, say, hey, "Hey, Claudia, what do you want to talk about?" Oh, and she texts me back, "Well, let's talk about." That. Okay, so this this one's a stretch because you mentioned about cataloging some of your dates, you had taken a photo, things like that. But do you guys write each other love letters at all? We haven't recently, have we? No, but I remember we were on a flight somewhere. We do notes. Dave, uh, I think of a couple of times, he left a note on my car. I parked in a shopping mall to meet a friend to go out to lunch. When I came back, there was a note saying, (laughs) inviting me (laughs) for a rendezvous. And uh, that was fun. But then another time, I remember we were on a flight. We were were flying somewhere to do a seminar, and uh, we... Um, didn't have seats together. And so <laughs> I asked the attendant, would you give this note to the guy back three rows? It's really cute. <laughs> and, and send a note back to him the plane. <laughs> and, and she got the right person. Letter. 
<laughs> right, right. She got the right person, correct? It wasn't going yeah, to yeah, random. So, yeah, yeah. And then, right. then he wrote something on it and sent it back to me. And so oh, the, the, I think the attendant was rather amused. Yeah, she yeah, she she was sort of amused. In fact, some of the people around us sort of got, you know, what are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Deb, I think if 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 the listeners get anything is dating is important. It helps you be intentional about your relationship. You're building your friendship, and from our research, we know that the, the level of couple friendship is what determines how well they're going to do and you know, over the years of, of marriage. And we've, we've constantly, we've been dating even after 53 years. We, that's a big... That's We're a, still dating. Yeah. And you're modeling for your children. We work with a lot of young parents in our seminars, and we tell them, look, your kids will wait while you grab some moments to build your marriage. But your marriage is not going to wait till your kids grow up. Mm. So now is the time. You know, you can have a 30-minute date after you put the kids in bed tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, put on some romantic music, light some candles, and see where it goes. We like to say, you know, we were the dating couple when dating wasn't cool. <laughs> and we're so thrilled with what's happening across the country all the date nights that are springing up, and, you know, it's, it's just... It's, actually, it's, all, it's pretty it's much great. a movement, you know, around the country. And I think it's because couples really do want to, to connect. They want to have, uh, they want to uh, increase the intimacy in their in their relationship, and they just don't know how to do it. And so, you know, date nights, even just fun date nights where you go out and just do something fun, that's, that's great. But our secret is to go a little bit beyond just the fun aspect, have some fun, but also do something that's going to build your relationship, improve your communication, help you manage uh, uh, conflict and, you know, resolve conflict and, and manage your, you know, anger, angry situations, which we all have to, we all have to deal with. Yeah. Even we have to deal with it, so... Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to bring you back to the personal front uh, before we close. I would love for you each to give each other a compliment. I know you can see each other in the same room. If you could just look at the other person and just share what you appreciate most about them before we go, that would be wonderful. Well, that is a fantastic challenge. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Looking at this guy who's been so loving and faithful for 53 years. And I love, Dave, I love you more right now than I ever have. And I thank you for your humor, your can-do attitude, and believing in me and in us. So I'll always choose us. I'll always choose us, too. And as I look at you, sweetheart, I think back on, you know, how God brought us together and, just the, the, how he messed our personalities, the fact that you are the, the the creative genius behind everything we've done, and you're the you're the driver. Yeah, I want to take the mountain today, and I'm the, I'm the turtle. It's, well, let's think about it, you know. And between the two of us, you know, we've 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 gotten where we are. So God's been good. Love you. That's amazing. And thank you so much for sharing yourselves and sharing your lives as you teach so many people around the country to remind them that dating your spouse or significant other is one of the most important things you can do to encourage your relationship and a lifelong relationship. So thank you so much to the ARPS. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Can we invite your listeners to come uh, for a little visit on our website and get more dating ideas? Absolutely. Go ahead. 10greatdates.org. 
and it's 10. One zero. One zero. TenGreatDates.org. We'd love for you to come for a visit. Wonderful. That is excellent. Thank you so much again for joining us, and we hope you have a great next year. Thanks, Deb. Appreciate it. And that was Deb Wolniak interviewing David and Claudia Arp. Ten Great Dates. What an idea, dating your wife. Crazy. When we come back, I'll talk to Deb. I'll talk about my favorite episode of Modern Family because there are some dates in that episode that are so darn funny. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we just heard from the Arps and their whole idea and the whole theory of continuing to date your spouse. They've been married for more than 53 years and still date. This is really smart. And joining us, as always, to talk about marriage, our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak. Deb, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Deb, this is, you know, look, we love doing every kind of marriage, and we've done We've done, well, we've done episodes where, my goodness, the woman just can't get through and the marriage doesn't work. And then we do the 53 years and what's the secret? And I think we all sort of want to know what makes good ones work. I mean, we know what makes bad ones not work. And we know when we get stuck, it's just, there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than being in a bad spot in your marriage. Everywhere you go, it comes with you. And you just want to say, what do I do? So how did you bump into this couple to begin with, Deb? Well, uh, David and Claudia have been around for quite a while. Back in the 80s, they had picked up on um, doing some talks on dating, and it just took off. People kept booking them for speaking engagements. They ended up writing a book, since then multiple books, and they're relatively easy to get. I mean, they're only like $10 each or paperback, easy reads, and they have actually, because of the different stages of marriage, premarital, marriage, empty nest, they've really gone the gamut of how do you really have fun in your relationship at no matter what stage, and you bring up a really good point. We get into those ruts sometimes and feel like, oh, my gosh, how are we? We used to have fun. Can't we have fun once in a while? And this is a great way to just kind of pick up something, an easy read, pick up a chapter, just take a second to dip into it, and it may start spurring on some ideas. Now, I, one thing I do get uh, questions on is sometimes women say to me, you know, I want to go on a date, but I really want my husband to ask me out on a date. I want to have to force it. It was like we were dating. And, and that's a really good point because when the guy takes the lead on this, it's so exciting. Or when you guys start dating, maybe surprise each other in planning dates. But for those that are having a hard time getting started, getting the guy kind of in tune with what's going on, Maybe pick up one of the books that they have. You can just go online and order that and then start reading it, but set it out. Set it out conveniently on the nightstand or on the coffee table. He'll run into it. Just casually, maybe he'll pick it up and start reading, getting an idea or a hint and start surprising you with some things. And if you go to their website, David and Claudia, I'm telling you, 53 years married, they do not look like they're 53 years married. They look like a young, energetic couple. It blows my mind. But that's what happiness 
And some of the things that they've done to invest in their relationship have really paid off in spades. And everybody knows it, and they want to hang around them, which is interesting. You know, what's amazing, Deb, is I I, I have many, many friends who have coaches of every conceivable kind because the coaching business is one of the biggest growing and fastest growing businesses in America. I've got, let's see, psychology coaches, the guys are traders, and they just want to keep their psychology right. i got guys who love golf. they got a golf coach. Uh, at gyms, we've got, you know, nutrition coaches. And, but, you know, people don't say, hey, how do I have a good marriage? How do I start? Why, why do you think people are hesitant to, to just have a marriage coach, Deb? I don't know anybody who has a marriage coach. Nobody. No, not oh, one. Really? They have people okay. they counsel with. They'll go to a counselor when they have a crisis. But that's look. I don't. You know, we don't get golf coaches when we have a golf crisis. Right. We go. Right. To, we we went. We start golf or bowling or whatever sport we do, and we get somebody to teach us how to do it well. And then we go for tune-ups, so we continue to do it well. But right. with marriage, we tend to go like eight weeks before the divorce. This right. is when we finally say we need help, and very often, as you say, the counselor—not no rip against counselors—but they're yeah. they're getting to things at a very difficult stage. Um, right. Why right. do you think it is? At least in my circle, but I would bet if we did a poll of 100 random married couples and asked them if they had a marriage coach, I would bet 99 would say no. You know, this is one of the things that we're trying to address at the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education Group that I sit on the board with. What we're trying to do is coordinate people around the country that help provide services into the marriage arena to really help people be proactive and engaging in their relationship now before things start getting stale, before things are like so far down the line that you're now at divorce court. The reality is sometimes those fractures start with a very simple thing and it ends up getting complex. And we understand there's seasons in life, there's crisis, there's kids, it's hard. But what we do want to do is we want to continue to bring forth not only great ways to be married, but teachers, educators, coaches, mentors into those areas. We need a lot more. I'm going to tell you right now, way up here in Wisconsin where I'm at, this county, um, like in the Sheboygan area, has about 50,000 some people. I've told everybody, like, guys, we all need to get on board with mentoring because if we all do it, Guess what? We'll meet the need of 50,000 people. Now imagine the whole population in the United States. We have a lot of marriages in this country. A lot of them are suffering. A lot of them are not doing marriage well. We need to keep training people in programs like Prepare and Enrich, and you need to look that up and find people that are coaching people in that. That's a one really, really good program that is national, and there's multiple people around the country that can help with that. But you also need to, just like you find a good Um, therapist, you need to resonate with that marriage coach. How is their marriage? Are they thriving? Is that the kind of marriage you want? That's something really important to think about as well, because that person can usually walk the walk and talk the talk. And those people are attractive, aren't they? You want to be with them. So you're right. We need more people on board, not only doing this very well, and people who have proven themselves over the years. And sometimes those are the generation, you know, just ahead of us, then maybe you have 20-plus years marriage experience. And I'm going to tell you what's kind of sad. If we don't keep teaching really good marriage skills to the next generation or even the importance of why you should be married, um, we're going to lose the art of marriage. Yeah, I think I don't so. want to see our country do that. Yeah, and I, I think there is an art that. There is an art to this, Deb. And, and I think that in large measure, a lot of people are just at a loss, don't have the vocabulary, and aren't sure what to do. You know, going back to what one of the things the ARP said 
They were talking about when you do go out on this date, you got to avoid certain subjects, finances, mm. in-laws, kids, brewing issues. So how do you do you have some ground rules going on these dates? Because I can't tell you there have been nights where my wife and I have our date night, but something happened in the family. And it's like if I start to crack jokes, I'm thinking, does she think I'm going to be making light of the fact that there's this crisis? And then she's quiet and then I get quiet. And then we're looking around going, so we're at a restaurant. We're not talking. And now everybody's looking at us going, oh, look at that old couple that won't talk to each other. And we're that couple in a restaurant, Deb. And it's painful. But we've all been there. Come on. Right, right. Right. Well, okay. So you travel a lot. You know, sometimes those jobs are demanding. Um, I would say this agree to talk about the subject at hand. Something major comes up. Um, forgive it like 10, 15 minutes. Say, we just need to unpack this just a little bit. So we have a game plan for talking about this a little later if it needs to be, like, let's say next morning when you're rested, et cetera, um, depending on your schedule. But have a, if you need a pocket, provide a pocket, but don't spend the whole night on that. Right. And say, okay. We're going to pack this away. How are you? When you look at the other person, I'm serious. Look at them in the eyes when you're talking with them. And really, even if you have to hold a hand or hold hands, I don't care if other people are looking at you, you do it. And you say, how are you? How is your day? And you may be surprised if you say that to your wife, what kind of things happened while you were gone? Oh, my goodness. Did you know so-and-so had their first blah, blah, blah? Or I'm just, I'm really crushed because a friend of mine, blah, blah, blah. You know, these are the things, these are the idiosyncrasies of a relationship where you're investing the most valuable thing, and that's time and your attention into that relationship. And believe me, as you listen, and you're going to see that emotion come out, that's a bonding experience. You're creating a memory. That doesn't cost anything to do that except your time and your attention. And it is the most valuable thing. You know, David and Claudia brought up this idea of friendship between couples in a marriage and that that's the probably is, as they estimate, the most vital part of a long term relationship. So expand upon that uh, for our listeners, because I think that the, the romantic pressure on all these dates is always there, too. And, you know, you're yeah. friends, but then you become friends for so long that the romance slides. You know, I think this is thing. This is something that uh, anyone married for any amount of time thinks about a lot. And right. so that, that line between the friendship and the romance, I mean, if you become friends and you're best friends, that's great. But what happens if you're best friends, but at, at the expense of the romantic part of your relationship? <laughs> so, so I'm going to tell you something that I think. Is I mean, I, by the way, Deb, I think the worst thing someone could say is a wife saying to you, we're roommates now. It's like oh. every guy's worst nightmare to hear that and every wife's worst nightmare to hear that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Well, OK, so so you become just functional couple you know you don't have that investment you're just going through the motions and stuff let that be a little bit of a a caution flag for you guys take a moment acknowledge the fact that you're in that mode and don't panic okay some couples panic and they say that's it we're just so screwed up let's just get it stop it right don't do that stop you both acknowledge it you're both grown up let's take hold of the reins and make sure we guide this relationship in the right direction Dating your spouse is a very, very good first step. Um, This piece, as far as building that friendship, as you build that friendship, that trust, and you work through some things, let's face it, when you start first dating, there's a couple cans of worms you're going to have to open up. You're like, oh, my gosh, vulnerability, I'm freaking out. Okay, get your coaches around you. Get that mentor around you. Get not family members, please. Let's just acknowledge that. We don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. We want reasonable people that can help say, hey, I see this in your relationship. I like that. Keep doing that. Or maybe you might want to tweak this part. 
why don't you go surprise her? Bring her a flower and just put it in the fridge so when she opens it up and she's making a dinner, it's there. It's like a cool note that just says, I love you. It could be something simple and make it work. It doesn't have to be expensive. Yep. That is romance. Well, as always, Deb, thanks for joining us. And again, Dave and Claudia, Claudia are 10greatdates.com. Go to their website, pick up their book, and take your wife or your husband out on a date tonight, tomorrow night, soon. Deb, thanks as always for joining us. Okay, have fun. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Marriage on the Mind. More after these messages. In trouble.